podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we'll be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing, You Were Always Someone Else, wherein we adapt a new potential faction for your Invisible Sun games. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. When we cast You Were Always Someone Else, we adapt different ideas and inspiration for our Invisible Sun games. Today we will discuss a potential new faction. In this discussion, we'll present the core idea as well as develop them as a front based on a simplified and adapted version uh, of the uh, kind of core mechanic and game development tool from the game Dungeon World. So um, this is inspired by a segment we had long, long ago. Uh, I forgot what exact number it was. I think it might have been like in the 20s of our uh, recordings. Uh, I think it was 69. 69. Oh, okay. (laughs) Not quite as long as I thought. Are you guessing? I'm not guessing. Okay. <laughs> I'm also um, not trying to get the right number. <laughs> <laughs> you're, yeah, you're, you're just, uh, okay, got it. Um, yeah, early on, uh, we talked about uh, Plato's Allegory of the Cave, which uh, we said was kind of important to understanding the, uh, the basis for the actuality and the distinction between the gray and uh, indigo in particular. Uh, lo and behold, in the published books, uh, there's an extended quote related to the Allegory of the Cave present in the books. Uh, so uh, we got that one, though it wasn't exactly a hard guess. Um, part of that was also developing a, an organization that we that one could use uh, as the basis for uh, are based on these philosophies. the The argument is that uh, a lot of the game of Invisible Sun is about notions of truth and illusion. And so, if you wanted to develop factions that had meaningful conflicts as opposed to just uh, mustache twirling villains, uh, then one source of inspiration could be different theories and philosophies distinguishing uh, approaches to truth. The Platonic uh, approach to truth grounded what we called the keepers of form. Uh, And now, after a long wait, we're back to look at some other theories of truth and reality uh, that one might use to create factions in your Invisible Sun games. Um, I I want to uh, take a moment first to thank, uh, now that we've actually had some contact with uh, the person who recommended uh, the topic of transportation across the suns. Uh, let me see. And I wrote down the name. Uh, mustache Rider is their current handle. Uh, Ultra Mustache. Yes. Is that what their Twitter handle is? I think it's like at a Ultra Mustache. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, maybe we should have been more prepared for that. Yeah, I only. I guess I only half prepared after my thank yous yesterday. I need to look up the message that I've I sent. I got it. Um, it's, it's Ultra Mustache, <laughs> and I'm sure they will appreciate my joke at the start of the episode. <laughs> 
<laughs> There's a good chance of that. Um, well, so thank you. And, and uh, I mentioned that now, not only because we wanted to thank uh, this uh, mustache writer for a recommendation uh, of a topic, uh, but we also welcome more feedback. If you like these sorts of segments uh, and you would rather have them more than every once every 18 months or so, uh, tell us and we can do more of these. I've got a list of potential factions we could write up based on different philosophies. Uh, but today, we'll, we're going to introduce a group called the Monists. Uh, these are roughly based on ecclesiastical thought in the early to mid-Christian period and its view on truth. Um, but like with the adaptation of occult practices in Invisible Sun, it's not a fully accurate description of any particular original source um, or even necessarily a, a good representation of the complexity of these philosophies in, uh, in this particular historical period. And so this doesn't reflect on the veracity of that system of thought. It's just a source of inspiration, much like the Sooth, uh, the Sooth deck is based sort of on... Uh, on the tarot deck, but doesn't really directly translate uh, concepts. Uh, we're just using the uh, this ecclesiastical thought as a uh, basis to create a faction that is gameable, and therefore will prioritize making things easy to understand uh, to non-professional philosophers um, and Christian uh, 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 divinity scholars and the like, um, and prioritizing gameability. Uh, ecclesiastical, uh, what's the definition of that? I think it just mean it, it usually refers to thought relating to um, usually academic or uh, intellectualized discussions of religion, uh, usually associated specifically with Christian okay. religion. So and this is the inspiration is coming from that early to mid Christian period. And I'll, I'll talk about some specific sources uh, if you uh, want to dig in deeper to the uh, the core inspiration and probably find more elaborate inspiration than we can talk about in a 30 or so minute uh, podcast. Cool. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, the core argument of monism and of this particular type of ecclesiastical thought is that there is a source of all truth. Um, in the ecclesiastical version, it's a monotheistic God. And that everything that exists is an expression of this singular truth. So for a monist group in Invisible Sun, there's a focus on the unity of all reality, typically expressed as the will of the creator of the actuality. Uh, this is, we can adapt some very specific early Christian philosophers uh, that build on this monistic theme um, and introduce concepts that I think will be useful for us when we create an actual front. Uh, one of the most influential early Christian philosophers, St. Augustine, for instance, was a noted monist. Uh, and this, he had to confront a problem that you still see popping up today. Um, it's a, a, a kind of it's a very common debate within Christian theology, as well as in um, kind of broader philosophical discourse about Christian theology. Uh, what's called the problem of evil. The argument against this monist approach was that if all things are an expression of a single will, and we call that will mm -hmm. God then bad things that happen in the world are also an expression of that will. And how can we have a good willed God that wills evil as part of this world? That's an interesting question. And, like, What's the answer? Um, there, I, I, am un, I don't know of a satisfying answer. There are a variety of nuanced answers, but I can tell you some of Aquinas' or Augustine and later Aquinas' answers as part of this mm -hmm. front. 
So um, uh, I, I'm not going to pretend to provide a satisfying answer to what is a long-standing uh, philosophical question in Christian theology. But Augustine's answer was that since he believed all that exists is an expression of a good, the will of a good God, then evil is in some ways an absence. It is somehow the obscured or absent or obscured reflection um, or absence of that will of God, which is a different sense of the word absence because it means someone doing evil is simply kind of out of the view uh, out of the expression of the will of God. And it creates its own complications and problems. But that notion of an absence is imminently gameable. <laughs> yeah. And in Invisible Sun, the first thing that strikes me is that, all right, so all magic comes from the Invisible Sun, Solaire, um, and Vizsla. Um, and the dark is not part of the Path of Suns. It's not under the sun itself. So, I mean, there's an absence right there. Absolutely. Right? It, 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 I would say Invisible Sun probably works a lot better than our world for this. <laughs> um, and so this is a, an example of where we can take a simplistic interpretation of Augustine's argument and gamify it uh, to the point where it doesn't necessarily provide a satisfying uh, version of Augustine's more nuanced argument about the nature of absence versus observe, of the observed world and these sorts of things. But we can use the um, simplistic version just for our game, and it works pretty well. Yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, if the dark is the absence of, you know, the light of Solaire, does magic have the same sort of effect on things from the dark? I'm, I'm going to have to mess around with that. Yeah, I had the same question when I took my uh, players to the dark in what is going to be the climb or is currently kind of the climax of our second season. Mm -hmm. And one of my first instincts was, oh, does magic even work here? Uh, my reaction was, wow, this game would be terrible without magic. So let's say magic works here. We took a trip to the dark and magic worked, but certain aspects of magic were not correct. Right. And the, and the way I did it was I just had, uh, we still use the uh, path of suns, but I said that these, that they did not feel the, the ebb and flow of magic as they do typically within the actuality. So any color that was empowered or color that was weakened had no effect on them while in the dark, in a particular area of the dark, I should say. Oh, that's, that's a good twist on it too. Uh, I just, I just like excluded, I excluded certain colors of magic while they were in the dark. Oh, I like that too. Um, so one, uh, so anyway, <laughs> yes. Uh, one thing we could draw from this monist tradition is this notion of evil as an absence. Uh, another that's, I, I think useful more thematically than as directly as the theory of an absence is, uh, Thomas Aquinas's theory of the hierarchy of laws. And I'll try not to go on too long about this, uh, but it's super important, especially the day after Constitution Day um, in the United States. Mm. Uh, Aquinas argued that the universe is driven by a series, uh, kind of a hierarchy of laws, the highest of which is called eternal law, which is the pure divine will. Unfortunately, this divine will is not knowable directly by mortals. So it it exists, but we can never perceive it or understand it. Cool. Sure. <laughs> Super yeah. useful there, Aquinas. Um, yeah, all right, dude. <laughs> however, it exists, he argues, that uh, in part because it inspires two things. Something he calls divine law, 
which is eternal law as revealed to mortals through religious scripture. So -hmm. this is why he argues there's kind of moral force behind uh, Christian writing like the Bible. Um, You could could have similar thoughts about uh, any kind of written religious tradition. But the idea is that the the written law in those scriptures is as close as we get to eternal law and we cannot actually observe eternal law. More often used, though, is a more broadly used, maybe I should say, is he also said that natural law is a... uh, a derivation of eternal law. This is the eternal law as insofar as it guides the operations of nature. So it is divine. So like every morning the sun rises in the east because the sun goes around the earth. Uh, something like it, for a while. That was, I think, one of the beliefs of natural law. Um, but it's the, the idea that the world itself is built inspired by e- this eternal divine will. And so we are constantly seeing an expression of eternal will in nature itself. Um, mm-hmm. It'll become more clear what that means, the implications of that in a moment. Uh, but both of these in turn inspire human law, which is just laws made by humans. It is at best inspired by divine and natural law, but it is, it is not, it is, it has no more force than uh, just a, a, the utterance of humans. It doesn't have any more moral authority than um, just think it, it has only mortal worth. It does not have uh, except two steps removed, any sort of higher moral worth. This notion of a moral hierarchy is, is uh, important because it suggests that natural and divine law override human law. Um, so there's mm-hmm. you, you it is the the natural law suspension of the legal um, you could vi- by this principle you can ignore or violate human laws if you are motivated by and probably unverifiable uh, devotion to natural or divine law okay this is the core argument of the declaration of independence I mean, okay, it's Constitution Day versus Declaration of Independence Day. But if you look at the beginning of the U.S. Declaration of Independence, it basically says that um, the violation of of natural law is what justifies the overturning of what were then binding human laws in the form of the colonial mm-hmm. British rule. And that would be the like these truths that we define to be self evident. Yes, and it's okay. those those truths are natural law. Um, and in fact, it refers to the truths of the God of nature, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's very much rooted in this natural law tradition. And the argument, it, it is the argument justifying violent revolution and uh, the overcoming what was binding human law by suggesting it was in obedience to a higher law. This okay. sets up the possibility for motivations of your group that uh, might be at odds with the law in operation. Uh, but isn't again just uh, you know your typical uh, villains trying to steal lots of money or something. They just if they this monist tradition would argue that the uh, law that we observe, uh, the law that's enforced by police or the thaw or whatever, uh, is itself no, is not binding against a conflict with some higher law with a closer link to the one uh, that that singular mm-hmm. authority. This is also the basis for Martin Luther King's civil disobedience. So if you read a letter from a Birmingham jail, you see language of uh, 
of a similar type, talking about how the uh, laws of segregation and racism uh, were a clear violation of natural law, and thus opposition to these laws, since they're just human laws, is justified by the motivation to bring into the world a better expression of natural law that would recognize the equality of all people. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So again, these are motivations you can use that can that can create conflict usefully uh, within your game. Now, let's take uh, it, 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 well. Let's take a moment, I guess. Um, does is making sense so far? Uh, yeah. It, yes. <laughs> I mean, there's thousands of years of tradition of monism and natural law theory, and those aren't exactly the same thing. Um, it's making sense because there are a lot of things in science fiction and fantasy that talk about like, oh, this is an alien force and it has motivations that don't make sense to humans. Mm-hmm. And that's like, oh, that's eternal or divine. You know, eternal law is basically this unknowable motivation for why Cthulhu wants to you know, wake up and destroy the, the planet. Yeah, mostly within philosophy, it's, it's more beneficent than that. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> Augustine or Aquinas, if we're talking about eternal law in particular, might might chafe a bit to say, uh, for him, the eternal law yeah, is yeah, a... Yeah, sorry, sorry, Aquinas. <laughs> uh, I am I'm adapting this to something that uh, relates to the games that I play. Right. And uh, in the modern RPG environment, if you don't adapt it to the Cthulhu mythos, you're not really trying. Yeah. Um, but, but, I mean, it kind of gives me a, a framing for like, um, this, this seems awful what what is happening here but you know this is a god and they have you know their own motivation and they don't see it as evil and it's because it's this you know higher function of how the law is working for them like how reality you know, works for this god yeah and and another kind of reference that probably won't come up in other uh, factions, so it might be useful to mention here, and it's useful to kind of again understand this motivation. It goes back to the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, as long as we're just again throwing around philosopher names. Oh yeah, I love it. <laughs> and he argued uh, that a, a primary principle of Christian thought, uh, again, sort of from this monist tradition, is what he calls the teleological suspension of the ethical, which is a great mm-hmm. phrase to throw around at the water cooler. Uh, but it's actually it plays into this notion that teleological is referring to the end, the the highest state, and okay. the achievement of the highest state, or we might say in, in our conversation, the realization of divine law, justifies acts that we are also sure are unethical. His uh, Kierkegaard's example is the command for Abraham to sacrifice his son. Oh, yes. And uh, Kierkegaard argues on an purely ethical grounds, it's clear and expressed in the Bible that, ooh, this is this is not good. This this would be considered an act of evil or, or a breach of, of ethics. However, mm-hmm. because of the commandment from as an expression of eternal law directly to Abraham and, you know, and, and kind of as, as you know, through a direct relationship and all of that, that there's the suspension of the ethical because the ethical is human perceived. Uh, in order to pursue the the unknowable eternal, uh, and that is the teleology of, of the Christian tradition. So that built into this story is this suspension of the ethics that drive us on a day-to-day basis in order to pursue this higher uh, will that is unknowable. Um, and it, it may look like then a, a breach of ethics to us, but 
uh, we have to pursue it. Uh, we're morally obliged to pursue it from this Abrahamic story. <laughs> and it, it does sound a bit like um, <laughs> trolling Christians on the internet, but yeah, this is a classic philosophical argument by Soren Kierkegaard, who was writing a few years before the um, internet. And actually he's writing from a Christian perspective. He himself was an avowed Christian, uh, but he's- No, it, it sounds like an argument for why that action would have been okay for Abraham to take. Like. Right. And the implication it has for this sort of hierarchy that, um, and again, for our purposes for gamification, it also motivates how someone who isn't necessarily, we'd say insane, but has a coherent ethical model that allows them to do things that are conventionally considered unethical. Yeah. Because for their teleology, their, their eternal law, uh, kind of suspends the temporarily uh, the operations of conventional ethics or things like that. And that's how you can actually get conflict um, and have uh, get, uh, factions that are motivated by what inside their view seems coherent, but from outside their view uh, is the basis for conflict. Uh, of course, we have some elements in Invisible Sun that make this actually very easy. <laughs> uh, so if we adapt this approach to create a front, the motive becomes uh, fairly obvious and easily translated into Invisible Sun because the goal is to express the will of the one God. This could be Vizsla or it could be the original casting at the center of the actuality. Um, mm -hmm. And it might be something entirely else. If you want to go kind of off the, uh, if, you, if you have your own, if you want a group that's motivated in a very different way, you just say that they are seeking the the unified will of some other uh, entity. But we, there's some you can draw from straight from the sources. Uh, and then there, the, the kind of the secondary motive is then to eliminate all absences of this will. You know, deviations from this will. Okay. Uh, and what would these deviations be? Uh, you mentioned from if Vizsla is the center, then maybe the dark. Uh-huh. If the central, if the- I mean, trying to, you know, eliminate demons from the dark doesn't sound like a villainous sort of motivation. No, and, and this could create a non-villainous organization if you'd like. Okay. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present a villainous version because that lets me walk through all the front. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, absolutely. You could have a non-villainous version of this with, without any difficulty uh, because there is a lot of monism built into Invisible Sun and the notion that there is a singular source of magic and, and there may be a singular source of the actuality in this casting. Mm -hmm. So there's some built in here for you to play with if you want to choose that. And that might actually be a positive motivation for your uh, group and you are eliminating the absences represented by the dark. Okay. Uh, alternatively, you may have some a group who decides they understand. You might, you might call this group the legacy, uh, the nature of the casting. Um, however, they the casting has like frayed threads. Um, it is it is absent in some places, and those places are people, and those places are uh, locations, and those places are objects. And the legacy, in addition to collecting, then. Uh, remnants of the casting is trying to eliminate things they consider the absences of this will. And um, if your, you know, if your friend is one of these absences that they believe is an unplanned uh, element of the actuality that was not mm -hmm. considered part of the casting by whatever arcane means they make this distinction, suddenly you're trying to defend the your friend from the legacy. And that's not necessarily what we think of as traditionally evil from the basic 
books from Invisible Sun, uh, but it is a source of conflict. Uh, and it is about, and you might have multiple conflicting versions of how you identify absences of the will uh, of that casting. And so factions within the legacy. There's a lot of different directions you can go with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to go with a simple and extreme version of this that um, some group, uh, and I could also use the term monists as this group that we're making up, um, has a extreme version of the interpretation of the, of the uh, will of this one god. Um, maybe it is Vizsla. We'll just take that for the, for the moment, uh, though they have an unconventional understanding of what Vizsla, Vizsla wants. And their argument is that Vizsla has a singular vision, and but this vision is diffused uh, in a variety of ways that endanger uh, the actuality. So you have to eliminate these differences in order to unify the vision of Vizsla. Uh, the impending doom from creating a front, that is, what happens if the PCs do nothing? And this this front basically accomplishes all of their goals would be the collapse of the suns into a singular vision following the elimination of all differences. This might even be a singularity that it results in the recreation of the path. Uh, that makes sense to me. I mean, all the suns that aren't Solaire are just different aspects of it. So why not put them all together and just have, you know, the one true sun? Absolutely. Or have yeah, one unified actuality. I, I don't see this as a villainous group. This is, this is correct. <laughs> so I, I've also developed four grim portents. These are like stages of the uh, that of, of how this front's progress might be exhibited to your characters. Uh, first, they might just notice that there's a rising social movement uh, that is uh, it, it is itself popular, and it is clearly described as having a devotion to the source of this one vision of the actuality. Again, whether that's Vizsla, whether that's the casting, whatever it may be. But this, there's a broad social movement saying that we, you know, we need to uh, uh, understand this single pervasive source of reality. Not itself very threatening. Uh, Grim Porton 2. Well, if we need to understand the source of this singular vision, then people who don't have the singular vision, especially those who might argue for the natural state that the suns, uh, the diversity of suns represents, that it, it is somehow natural and, and has value in and of itself, uh, people who deny um, the singular vision in any particular way, well, we need to get rid of them. So we are driving them from Saturine or something along those lines. We do need to get rid of them. <laughs> Um, you can you can find inspiration for this in a variety of places. Uh, let's say newspapers. In uh, so yes, I'm saying our newspapers are grim portents. Uh, the third grim portent: variety starts to disappear, and I don't just mean that the group has been successful in driving away uh, most of the people who disagree with their vision of a singular actuality, but that literally variety begins to disappear. In our world, this might look like all of the breakfast cereal boxes all start looking the same and there's only one brand of breakfast cereal. On a more dramatic level, you might start to see things like identical NPCs or thought forms start to all kind of look alike and they're converging towards a singular type. Um, so you start, it's, it, first you might think, oh, well, there's a whole bunch of twin brothers and sisters here. Then you realize, no, no, these are, these are, you know, it's just people are all starting to look more and more alike as the fundamental magic of the universe begins to converge towards a singular vision. 
that will likely uh, so trigger all restaurants are Taco Bell. Um, that's the dystopian version. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and finally, there would be um, evidence of some major ritual that this would be Grimportant Four. Maybe would be the major ritual that will collapse the diversity of the actuality into a singular thought. And so there would be no more distinctions between Vizlay, between people, between locations, between suns. You'd be collapsing this all down into a beautiful singularity. Uh, I would probably make that sort of that motive not known to all of the social movement. <laughs> mm -hmm. To some, the social movement is just about driving out the other, and they're perfectly fine with that. But when they realize all but one is eventually other, uh, they they might not have signed on for what was going on, but within the sort of hierarchy, they might know that the leaders might know uh, that the eventual goal and the kind of logical consequence is the collapse of all reality to a singular thought. Cool. And so this is, again, just a, a, an example of how we could build a front, an example of how we can uh, adapt a philosophical tradition, trying to respect the tradition, uh, but gamify it and not pretend we are accurately des describing this tradition in all of its nuance, uh, but make for uh, new factions and organizations uh, that hopefully can provide either protagonist or antagonist groups with complex motivations that we can kind of really engage with and debate. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, that's at A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. So please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes uh, or whichever uh, podcast app you are using. Uh, it really helps us out. Uh, we also like seeing ratings and reviews, whether they're good or bad. Uh, or else just tell a friend about the show. That's another great way to get the word out and ha help people find us.